This is Africa Digest. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa from an African perspective, broadcasting from Johannesburg. We're on the frequency 15235 kHz on the 19-meter band to West Africa. I'm Samora Magesi in studio with Jolane Tulo and Mosibodi Makura. Top stories on Africa Digest at this hour. Nigeria has been warned against allowing Morocco to become a member of the economic community of West African states. Zimbabwean nationals in South Africa now have until next year January to apply for the new Zimbabwean exemption permit. And African cocoa farmers are abandoning plantations and farms as, pro as prices of the commodity nosedive in the world market. And in sports, Bafana Bafana hit a number of injuries ahead of crucial World Cup qualifier against Senegal. But first, here's your news with Joala Netulo. Good evening, I'm Jolani Tulo. A Zimbabwe court has ordered the release on bail for people facing charges of undermining the authority of President Robert Mugabe after his powerful wife was jeered at a rally. Three men and a woman were arrested after attending a ruling Zanu PF party rally in the country's second city, Bulawayo, where Grace Mugabe was heckled while addressing the crowd on Saturday. Magistrate Franklin Kwanazi said there was no compelling reason for denying the accused their rights. They are expected back in court later this month. South Africa's Department of Home Affairs has extended the deadline for the submission of documents and biometrics for the Zimbabwean exemption permit until the 31st of January next year. Home Affairs DG Kuseli Apleni, however, said the deadline for online applications is still the 30th of November. About 20,000 people still need to make the online appointment. Apleni urged holders of the Zimbabwean special permit, which expired in December, not to panic and use the online facility to make an appointment. Once they have a Proceed for what they will be for what they will be legal in the country while completing the process. There is no need to go and clog in the offices of VFS because point number one is that it's only the application which you do online by November 2017. Two, you've got two months, which is now is December and January to make your appointment. So why do you worry? Three, you are going to be able to travel. We're saying now with your document which you currently have, with the proof that we have applied, you'll be able to go home for festive if you want. As part of the Sadek Malaria Day, South Africa's Minister of Health, Arhon Motswaledi, together with a team of health ministers from other member states, have conducted anti-malaria spraying missions at Giani in the Limpopo province. The ministers were on site carrying canisters containing anti-malaria chemicals at Tomo village. Motswaledi says spraying in areas prone to malaria is important and should be done twice a year. It's the real work because this house was never sprayed. It has to be sprayed and what we're showing is that in any particular village where malaria is endemic, you need to spray at least, at least 90% of the households. If you spray but you do less than 90%, you're still going to have an upsurge of malaria. So we have to show and you must do that two times a year. It means this house, after six months, we must come and spray it again. 
And finally, debate is continuing in the Indian capital, Delhi, about how to tackle the toxic smog which is engulfing the area for a fourth consecutive day, where the conditions and crop burning are blamed as among the contributory factors. The BBC's Joel McGivering has more. It's the real work, because this house was never sprayed. It has to be sprayed, and what we're showing is that in any particular village, Delhi residents say visibility is marginally better, but pollutants are still many times higher than recommended health levels. There's growing anger about the misery caused by the toxic smog and pressure on politicians to act. On Thursday, Delhi's chief minister, Arvind Kedrival, announced an emergency measure to reduce traffic, an odd-even scheme based on registration numbers. But it's unclear how effective that will be and whether public transport will cope with demand. Crop burning is also seen as a factor, but there's no political agreement yet on ending that. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. Nigeria has been warned against allowing Morocco to become a member of the economic community of West African states because of the potential economic danger it could pose to Abuja and the entire region. Morocco, though located in North Africa and member of the Maghrib region, which was proposed by the late Libyan leader Muammar Gaddafi, is seeking to be admitted into the West African regional body. Channel Africa's Collins Atohengbe reports from Lagos. Feelers that Casablanca was making move to seek membership of the Economic Community of West African States were first reported earlier in the year, but then it went under without events only to resurface with a stronger wind for the regional body to admit it into ranks. Why is Morocco leaving its North African region seeking to be a member of a classified regional grouping of countries in West Africa when it is rightly situated in a region where it can make greater impact and help advance the economic stability of the region? The answer has been quite elusive to economists and foreign relations analysts. Beyond the desire to expand its influence across Africa where it had once played a black ship because of the issue of Western South. Speaking at a public hearing organized by the Nigerian House of Representatives Committee on Foreign Affairs, Cooperation and Integration in Africa, on the quest, Nigeria's Minister for Foreign Affairs, Geoffrey Onyama, says based on the advice he received from the Ministry of Trade, the move, if viewed objectively, would blow Nigeria some economic fortune rather than the contrary. The Ministry of Trade uh, gave us some uh, statistics and advisory, uh, I think which shows that uh, if we are just objective about it, that it will actually be an economic win rather than economic loss. From the discussions, experts, contributions and opinion expressed at the hearing, the minister seems to be a lone voice in the wilderness in thinking that there is any economic gain from Nigeria if the bid scales through. In the opinion of Fred Agu, a research fellow at the Nigerian Institute of International Affairs, Nigeria should block Morocco's bid outright. I think it is important for Nigeria to remain in the ECOWAS and to instrumentalize the ECOWAS and to make sure that it blocks this move by Morocco to come into the ECOWAS because it has the powers to block it. The former director general of the institute, Professor Bola Akinteren, were vehemently forbids that Morocco should join the West African regional body, and his reasons are not far-fetched. Professor Akinterewa says the future of admitting Morocco into ECOWAS will become a protracted problem which Nigeria, 
may never be able to solve. It's going to be a problem that we will never be in a position to solve if, for now, we do not block Morocco eternally. A few years back, while Morocco was still maintaining its stance against membership of the African Union, Casablanca attempted to become a member of the European Union. But since its readmission into the ranks of membership of the OAU, there are no clear indications if the desire to breathe through the English Channel is still being sought. But as a nation which would rather dine in the tables of Brussels against what is set in Addis Ababa, a constitutional lawyer and public affairs analyst, Femi Falana, says Morocco will then become the channel that can kill all of Nigeria's industries. So if you allow Morocco to come in with our free movement of goods and persons, Morocco, of course, is going to be uh, a conduit pipe for a European Union to flood West Africa with goods and all our industry will just collapse. While the discussions continue, the chairperson of the House of Representatives Committee, which organized the public hearing, Nenna Elendu Ukeje, says the outcome will help National Assembly to take a stand on the issue. It is my fervent hope that at the end of this public hearing we would arrive at a consensus that will inform Nigeria's position to either support the bid or reject it. Morocco returned to the ranks of the African Union after some 33 years of absence over the African body's decision to admit the Sahrawi Arab Republic into membership. It will be recalled that Morocco has refused to vacate Western Sahara and was engaged in a political armed struggle with the Polisario Front, which declared the enclave independent up till 1991 when a ceasefire was brokered by the United Nations. From Lagos, Nigeria, I am Collins Atohengwe reporting for Channel Africa. Just a day before Burundi's effective withdrawal from the Hague-based International Criminal Court, the country was yesterday informed it would be investigated for crimes against humanity by the court. The ICC published its decision taken on 25th of October 2017, which had remained confidential to ensure the safety of victims and potential witnesses. In September, a commission of inquiry on Burundi mandated by the Human Rights Council found that the violent political crisis sparked when President Pierre Nkurunzinza announced he would run for third term in office in 2015. This has been marked by a heavy-handed crackdown by security forces on street protests. The abuses are attributed to the government's army, the police, and the security services, as well as the parliamentary youth wing of the ruling party known as Imbone Rakure. Burundi's ambassador to South Africa, Isaiah Ntirizoshira, elaborates. Uh, what I can say is that Burundi will continue collaborating with the ICC because uh, Burundi was a member of the ICC till 27th of, 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 of October. And uh, within the, the legal framework of the ICC, Burundi will continue collaborating as it has been collaborating. As a matter of fact, uh, since uh, April 2016, you remember that the ICC has started conducting a preliminary examination to decide whether there is enough information on crimes against humanity which would lead to an ICC investigation. And Burundi government has been collaborating with the ICC. And as an example, in April 2017, ICC requested from the Burundi government information about some alleged crimes it was informed about. And in June 2017, that means two months later, the government of Burundi informed the ICC how each of these mentioned cases were being, being handled by, by the Burundi uh, judiciary system, meaning that all the, the, the alleged crimes 
ICC was informed about. In fact, they were being handled by the government. Burundi and the world have been notified that the ICC will, uh, will, will conduct an investigation on, on, on uh, the say, human rights and violation of crimes. Okay, Burundi has not been associated with, 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 that, with, with those, that decision, even though it should, have, it, it should have been associated in the process. Burundi has also been uh, closing its borders to international journalists and investigators and uh, um, reportedly suppressing all dissenting voices. Now, there's a prediction that the investigation by the ICC will be met with a similar approach. Um, now, you've said that you are going to be cooperating, but let's talk a little bit you know, about um, uh, the closing of those borders for international journalists and investigators. Burundi, in fact, as the Burundi has not been associated with, with the disauthorization of the ICC to investigate in Burundi, it, it, there are many possibilities which, which, are, which are offered. First of all, Burundi can appeal this decision of the ICC to, to, to conduct this investigation. And in that case, the process will, will follow, it will be appealed, and, uh, and a decision will be, will be made later. And another, another, possibility, another possibility is that Burundi can ask the ICC about what new information it has about the crimes which have been made, maybe committed in Burundi, and that Burundi is not handling because Burundi showed his, his willingness to, to conduct investigation and, and, and try all those who, who are convicted of, of crimes. And it has proven, proven so by, let's say, informing the ICC in June about all the crimes it was informed about. So Burundi, we, 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 we can also ask the ICC to hand over to the government of Burundi those cases in order for the, for the Burundi judiciary system to conduct those, those investigations and, 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 and try those cases. So Burundi will continue offering collaboration in the, frame, in the legal framework of international law, international, international law and, and the ICC. Public and private sector stakeholders should work closely together to stimulate local government economies. This is according to South Africa's Minister of Cooperative Governance and Traditional Affairs, Des Fonoyen. The Cooperative Governance and Small Business Development Departments have jointly convened the first ever National Local Economic Development Conference in Johannesburg. The conference provides an opportunity for a dialogue between the public and private sector to exchange ideas on topical and critical issues relating to stimulating local economies. The stakeholders are also sharing information on success and constraints with particular emphasis on how to achieve inclusive economic development at local government level. Minister of Cooperative Governance and Traditional Affairs, Des von Royen, has more. The Constitution's uh, provision don't allow uh, for uh, municipalities to be funded uh, fully from the national fiscal. So as a result, municipalities are expected to generate their own revenue uh, to provide additional services to uh, their communities. And that requires a solid economic base uh, for each municipalities to be able to generate revenue. Now, the issues of local economic development uh, has been a priority since I mean, this new dispensation. But the challenge has been that uh, our focus uh, to issues of local economic development at the municipal level has not been uh, appropriate. Uh, there has been issues 
issues of this alignment of support, but also there have been issues uh, around uh, uh, collaboration of uh, uh, the private sector as well as uh, the sector departments mm-hmm. to support municipalities. Mm-hmm. For the purpose of this workshop, remember that the president just recently established uh, the, the, the Ministry of Small Business Development. I mean, this is a new, a new ministry, and this is a ministry that is expected to champion issues of local economic development, among other things. So we have partnered with the ministry because we think it is, uh, the ministry is better positioned to assist us as we align our support to uh, municipalities, but also as we define the new phase of this local economic, uh, local economic development approach mm. uh, in, in in, in, in our endeavor to, to position uh, local economic development strategies in municipalities so as they are able to achieve uh, inclusive economic transformation in the municipal space. Mm. Now, uh, you've highlighted quite a number of uh, constraints, you know, that are standing in the way of that local economic development, which is much needed. But um, you're, you, you've coined the term uh, the basics for this particular conference, which is what you believe is needed um, to ensure um, uh, the fast-tracking of growth in the sector. What are those basics, Minister? The first thing that the conference has identified as a critical uh, point uh, uh, is the coordination of support to local municipalities. That simply suggests that the ministry uh, of Minister Lindwe Zulu uh, should be, I mean, the single window through which all sector departments and private sector uh, efforts are coordinated to support local municipalities. But also, secondly, we need to uh, strive um, uh, to a point uh, where we, we are able to, to look at the local economic development as a sector that is professionalized. So as a result of that, uh, yesterday we, we, we launched what we call uh, Economic Development Council in South Africa, which is a council that will start looking at the regulation of the sector, but also the broader aspects around how do we professionalize the sector. We'll be working with the University of Johannesburg in dealing with this particular aspect. So, truly speaking, I think the conference agrees that we'll have to make sure that there is proper coordination on supporting municipalities, but at the same time, there is an element of professionalizing the sector. So as this sector is not taking a backseat that he has taken now mm-hmm. in municipal planning, in provincial government spending, in national government uh, uh, spending. And it's just finally, before we let you go, Minister, um, it's often said that, you know, um, a, a gathering such as this one don't often really heed any tangible results. Um, how are you going to ensure that this doesn't end up just being another talk shop? Of course, uh, we, we are subjecting the implementation of the outcome of this uh, important conference to normal uh, monitoring and evaluation systems of government. That simply suggests that we will be using all our uh, intergovernmental relations framework forums, like your MINMEX, your presidential coordinating council, to monitor uh, the progress of this particular implementation of the, the outcome of this important uh, conference. Equally important, I, I, I should also indicate that in the private, the private sector is also coming on board. Just this morning, we we we, we were launching a very important uh, facility in the history of our country, which is called uh, the, the Global Entrepreneurship uh, Network. Uh, uh, institution. This is a hub that we'll be working with in partnership with the Department of uh, Small Business Development to make sure that uh, we we are able to support emerging entrepreneurs coming from uh, municipalities through such a center because it all happens at a local level. So already there are steps that we are taking to make sure that we sustain the outcome of this important conference.
That was South Africa's Minister of Cooperative Governance and Traditional Affairs, Des van Royen, talking to Zikona Miso. A Kenyan credit reporting company has introduced into the market a mobile lending scorecard. This will provide mobile phone-based borrowers and share information with lenders with the aim of weeding out defaulters. Sarah Kimani reports on mobile-based lending and how the mobile loans are lifting Kenyans out of poverty. When Martin Gashohi needed quick money to work on a project for a client, he turned to his mobile phone. Without a regular income and collateral to stand in the gap for him, he knew commercial banks would turn him down. Banks have a lot of red tape. It takes a long time. Same as a circle, it takes a very long time. Gashohi is among millions of Kenyans who have opted to turn to the ever-growing financial technology space in the country. Billy Owino is the chief executive officer of TransUnion, a local credit reference bureau. Anyone from a small business person, like what you call the mama burgers, you know, the fruit and vegetable vendors who borrow for cash flow purposes, it's students, working people who need money to finance any gaps. Owning a smartphone is changing the way Kenyans do business and expanding access to financial services. At any given time, Geshohi will have five different loans from at least five different service providers, all of them mobile phone based. I may get a client who wants things done urgently and they don't have, uh, they're not facilitated like the down payment. So the loan app now becomes like your guardian angel now. You just, you just get the money instantly. Uh, sort out your business. When you get paid now, you pay the loan with the same. Data from the International Finance Corporation, the World Bank's lending arm, indicates that small and medium enterprises in Kenya have an annual credit gap of $6 billion. This gap is now being filled by financial technology companies like mobile-based lender Tala. Tala, which is a subsidiary of the U.S.-based InVenture, has offices in Kenya, Tanzania and the Philippines. Rose Muturi is the country manager of Tala, Kenya. Our limit currently is $500. However, we do give anything from $10 up to $500. It also depends, is it your first loan or is it a repeat loan? So for the first loan, we'll do between $10 and $40. But the more you repay or depending on how you pay, we increase your limit up to the $500. The lenders use mobile data to determine one's credit worthiness. What we do is we pick what you call alternative data. It's amazing how much we can tell just based on how you use your phone. How many calls do you make? How many SMSs or what kind of SMSs do you send? How do you interact on your social media? Uh, are there other financial texts that you usually receive or send out? From verification to disbursement of funds, it takes less than five minutes. For the customers, they don't necessarily look at the money being given to them immediately. It's a loan decision that has to be instant. So that's why you find the likes of Tala have been disruptors because we didn't just give you a decision. We want to step ahead to give you the money. As the demand grows, so is the need for a credit score. TransUnion, a local credit reference bureau, has come up with a scorecard tailor-made for mobile lenders. Owino explains. From our database, we're able to give them a view of this person. It's anything from just a basic ID verification or to an extent now where it's more complicated is how is this person performing? Does he have any other loans? What's the score of this person? And for that, we built something very specific for the industry, which is a specific mobile loan score. These are micro-entrepreneurs. So once you pay off once, twice, it means we have predicted that you, you have this capacity to pay and you therefore can maybe qualify for larger amounts from a conventional bank. 
As competition from mobile lenders intensifies, commercial banks have come up with products to offer similar loans. Financial experts predict that as the ownership of smartphone grows, so will the rate of financial inclusion in East Africa's biggest economy. Sarah Kimani, Kenya. African cocoa farmers are abandoning plantations and farms as prices of the commodity nosedive in the world market. A kilogram today costs one U.S. dollar down from three U.S. dollars. Producers gathered in the Cameroon capital, Yaoundé, mapping out and encouraging local processing. The falling prices are attributed to a boom in supply. Moki Kinzeka reports from Yaoundé. Farmers at Nkok Ekogu in the central region of Cameroon celebrate as a cocoa post-harvest processing and treatment center is inaugurated in their village. Farmer Petronella Ndukong says it will help them to dry and conserve their produce while waiting for prices to increase. In all the regions producing cocoa in Cameroon, it's going to be a wonderful thing for the producers. They'll start learning how to transform it. And with the coming to of our partners who are saying that they'll be transforming our crops with quality, competition will be in the market. If the demand too is high, then the producers are sure of good money. The world's fifth cocoa producer, Cameroon's average cocoa production was 230,000 tons in 2015. It increased to 260,000 tons last year when demand increased in the world market. The International Cocoa and Coffee Organization reports that in 2015 there was a boom with growing demand particularly in the new markets of China and India. This pushed farmers to produce a surplus of 400,000 tons of cocoa against the 4 million ton annual supply. In 2016 and 2017, there has been another surplus of about 400,000 tons. Yet, local processing in Africa is only 25% of production, so the continent looks up to developed countries for processing. Luke Maguam Bargatangana, Cameroon's trade minister, says this year has been the worst in the past five as the farm gate price per kilogram officially dropped to $1 from $3 three years ago, and that is pushing farmers to abandon their farms. La faiblesse du cacao de manière spécifique, j'allais dire d'ailleurs que c'est. He says the main challenge is that financial and social pressure is already forcing some farmers to harvest cocoa, which is not even ready, and drying them under unhealthy conditions. And the result is that the prices will continue to drastically reduce because the cocoa is of very poor quality. And there are indications production will nosedive. Ambe Funui, president of a cocoa producers association in the Lekie, central region of Cameroon, says environmental factors are harming production. I pray that the production should not reduce this year. Because, uh, we've noticed that uh, there is very timid bearing of cocoa. There's a late bearing. And then it seems as if there's persistent black pot, despite the fact that farmers are applying the insecticides and fungicides. During the Yaoundé meeting to encourage African countries to process cocoa, 
Daniel Mercier of the French Confederation of Chocolate Makers and Confectioners said it will be dangerous for Africa's economy if cocoa production is abandoned because of low prices. He advises that production should not be dropped and the quality of the crop should be controlled by stopping early harvest. C'est une honte. C'est une honte le prix du cacao. Nous on a honte et ce que je dis souvent he says it is a shame that while developed countries process cocoa and make much profits from itself, producing countries remain very poor. He says the best thing to do will be for cocoa producing countries to process their cocoa to highly consumable food items like chocolate. He says while pork producers are negotiating to have equipment and factories back home, they should know that industrialized nations will want them to improve the quality of the cocoa they produce. 70% of World's cocoa comes from West and Central Africa. Producers have suggested that the issue of cocoa price decline should be included in the agenda of the Africa-EU summit that will be held later this month in Abidjan, Côte d'Ivoire, that together with Ghana contributes 60% of the cocoa sold in the world. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzuka. In Yawundi. South African Minister of Health Dr. Aaron Motoledi says the recent outbreaks of malaria seen in the Southern African Development Community region are concerning and have the potential to threaten efforts to eliminate the mosquito-borne disease by 2020. Motoledi is among the health ministers from Southern Africa who are gathering in South Africa's Polokwane city in the Limpopo province as part of annual meetings between the regional health leaders to discuss a range of health issues affecting SADC member states. The three-day meeting, which concludes today, is this year themed Malaria Elimination in Southern Africa, Priorities and Challenges, as it coincides with the commemoration of the SADC Malaria Week. The World Health Organization estimates that in 2015 alone, there were an estimated 212 million new cases of malaria worldwide. Despite recent progress, the disease continues to have a devastating impact, particularly on the percent of malaria deaths. Motsoledi says the event has met most of the delegates' expectations. Of course, it has, because we have discussed, we have made agreements, we have taken resolutions. But up to so far, yes, it has reached our expectations. Give us an overview, Minister, of some of the issues that have been discussed at this meeting. We have discussed a broad range of issues. The most prominent ones among them was the issue of elimination of malaria within certain countries and the issue of control of TB within the certain countries, because... Both diseases are very, very problematic within SADC. Would you say that this meeting is relevant to those who are fighting malaria and TB? Oh, extremely so, extremely so. Let me start with malaria. There's no one country, and I repeat, no one country that can put up strategies to fight malaria without working with its neighbors. In other words, as South Africa, we can't sit here and produce a program and say this is a program of fighting malaria without involving Botswana, Zimbabwe, Mozambique and Swaziland. It just doesn't happen. And you are aware that I'm not mentioning Lesotho because mm. there's no malaria in Lesotho. There are no mosquitoes there. The place is extremely cold. Malaria won the hot and warmer areas. So in the case of South Africa, is the Vembe district in Limpopo, the Mobani district in Limpopo, the Chanveni district in Pumalanga, the Mkanyagude district in KwaZulu-Natal, all of them 
are bordering our neighboring countries. Namibia has just reported that there is no way they can fight mosquitoes without the involvement of Angola. Botswana cannot do so without the involvement of Zimbabwe. So any country within SADC cannot have any program as a standalone program without fighting with the other countries. That is why the last day of this summit every year is always dedicated to what is called SADC Malaria Day. The country that is hosting this summit will choose a village where ministers will go and get into the houses and spray the walls with DDT to fight the malaria because the mainstay of fighting malaria is to kill mosquitoes and the most effective tool is to kill them with DDT. TB, what we're discussing is we also noted that the World Health Organization has shown that there are 30 countries in the world that are regarded as the high burden countries. That means that are carrying more TB than all the other countries. And unfortunately, they've noted that out of these 30 countries, one third come from SADC only. You know, about nine or so are SADC countries. And so we're discussing what do we do as SADC because we don't want to have that tag that we are the most prevalent region in the whole world. But we're also discussing the issues that are going to take place in Moscow, in Russia next week. The World Health Organization, together with the Russian Federation, have called a meeting in Moscow of ministers of health and other world experts to discuss TB as a preparation of the high-level meeting of the heads of states in New York next year in September. That is, TB has become such a world problem that we thought the issue is now above ministers of health. It must be discussed by heads of states presidents, prime ministers, and kings. This is happening for the first time in history. That TB is discussed by heads of state. That discussion is going to take place at the United Nations General Assembly in September next year. The meeting in Moscow is going to prepare for that. And now, SADC ministers have to take a stand. What are we taking to Moscow? What are we going to say to the World Organization and other experts? What message do we say they must send to the heads of state? Now, you mentioned that there's no one country that can fight malaria without the involvement of its neighbors. How much of a threat is cross-border malaria to many countries' elimination efforts? It is. It is a very big threat. If one country lowers the bar, it doesn't help. No matter how hard the next country is working, it doesn't help them. That's how important and powerful cross-border malaria is. The reasons are simple. Mosquitoes don't know borders. They don't need passports. They just bite across the borders. And if one country sprays the houses and mosquitoes discover that they can't go into that house because it's sprayed, they'll simply move to the house across the border that is not sprayed and they'll continue their biting. Maybe let me explain the mechanism. The mosquitoes that are biting people are not all mosquitoes. It's the female mosquito. Male mosquitoes are vegetarians. It is female mosquitoes that need blood. Why? Because they lay eggs. A mosquito cannot lay eggs if it has not imbibed blood. It has to get blood to lay eggs. If you make sure that they don't come in contact with people by spraying or making sure that mosquitoes don't bite people, then the whole process of malaria comes to a standstill because no eggs will be laid. And if mosquitoes, their population do not increase, malaria will die off. But at the same time, are you encouraged by the progress that has been made towards achieving the goal of malaria elimination? We were encouraged until this year because three years to four years ago, we formed what we call E8 within SADC. E8 means elimination aid. We believe that eight countries in SADC 
are in a position to bring an end to malaria. And we said four of those are frontline. When we say they are frontline, we mean they are in a better position than the others. And so the frontline countries in this case is South Africa, is Swaziland, is Namibia, is Botswana. We believe those who are in a position to bring an end to malaria. The other four is Mozambique, Zimbabwe, Zambia and Angola, which we thought they would be able to do it by 2080. The front line will be able to do it by 2020. So we had a setback that seven out of these eight countries had a resurgence of malaria last year and this year, and that's why we are so deeply worried. That's South Africa's Minister of Health, Dr. Aaron Motoledi, talking to Elizabeth Ledicha. In the lead-up to World Antibiotic Awareness Week, marked next week, the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization, FAO, the World Organization for Animal Health and the World Health Organization are together calling for responsible use of antibiotics in humans and animals to help reduce the emergence of antibiotic resistance. The antibiotic resistance is rising to dangerously high levels in all parts of the world and threatening our ability to treat common infectious diseases. Infections affecting people include pneumonia, tuberculosis, blood poisoning and gonorrhea. And animals alike are becoming harder and sometimes impossible to treat as antibiotics become less effective more on uh, expectations for this World Antibiotic Awareness Week from Dr. Jean Lebroth, FAO's Chief Veterinary Officer. The World Antibiotic Awareness Week started a few years ago, and it is basically to create the awareness of what these life-saving medicines can do for you and how we should preserve them, how we should use them, how we should dispose of them. These are life-saving medicines, and we need to handle them with care. The three agencies are calling for responsible use of antibiotics in humans and animals to help reduce the emergence of antibiotic resistance. How can this be done? Well, that's a very, very complex question. The answer would be multifaceted. I think one of the principles of us coming together is that we recognize the complexity of the issue. We're dealing with not only one sector, it's not only the human health sector. In food and agriculture, we are dealing with dairy and and poultry and uh, shrimp and uh, crops, bees, rabbits. So I think we do need to have our message and our implementation of the good agricultural practices catered to a particular sector. So it's one step at a time. And certainly we often look at some countries that have progressed or are at the top of the scale in their good agricultural practices, and we have to recognize that it's taken them decades to get to that. And I'm referring to maybe some of the Nordic countries or those that are in in Europe or parts of North America or in the Pacific, but again, it's taken decades. So we cannot expect that overnight this will happen in some of the low or middle income countries. What do you expect will come out of this word event? It's an awareness week and so I do think that it's uh, good communication, creating that awareness not only to the public at large but also to the professionals and in our case those professionals that are producing food to the world, the farmers, the veterinarians, the agronomists, the pharmacists, those decision makers. That was Dr. Jean Lebroth, the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization's Chief Veterinary Officer, talking to FAO Radio's Muriel Saar in Rome. The German non-governmental organization Urgewalt and its partners published the Global Coal Exit List, a comprehensive database of companies participating in the thermal coal value chain at the United Nations Climate Summit in Bonn. Katrin Hanswind, coal campaigner and financial researcher for Urgewalt, says her organization developed the coal exit list to provide the finance industry with a concise list of companies that should be divested. 
worldwide of the whole core value chain. So first of all, we try to cover all relevant core utilities and coal miners applying different kinds of thresholds. We applied first of all like percentage threshold. So all the companies that have a quarter of power production above 30% are on the list, but also all power plants that have more than 10,000 megawatt installed coal power. And we have coal miners on the list that have more than 30% of their revenue from coal production or that produce more than 20 million tons of coal. So one thing which is new about the list that we apply a percentage criteria and an absolute criteria and not just one of these, how we usually found it in other lists. The other new thing is that we also try to cover all the rest of the core value chain. So about two-thirds of the list of 775 companies are utilities and miners. One-third of the list, however, is other parts of the value chain. So, for example, transport companies, the most famous being Horizon from Australia, that is setting up the railways for the mines. Lots of trade companies and other service providers, like companies that build machinery, for example. Now, talking about this global coal exit list, are we looking at a positive aspect of some of these companies ditching coal and looking for other alternative sources of energy? You mean if we looked at positive aspects of those companies? I mean, we really looked at just the coal content of certain companies. So, of course, what we want or what we want to urge industry is either to ditch coal totally or to reduce at some point to zero their exposure to coal. What the list is meant, though, mainly is for investors and banks to know if they don't want to have coal in their portfolios anymore or if they don't want to finance coal anymore, which companies to avoid. On the other hand, this can, of be, of course, be a goal for a company not to be on the global coal exit list anymore. <laughs> and they can do this by ditching coal. That's right. Now, Catherine, how do the financiers uh, are able to check and... Uh identify some of these companies that are involved in coal operations? So, I mean, our list is like the first tool how they can really see if in their portfolio is any company which is part of the coal industry. So either if they're approached by a company for long as a bank now, you could uh, check in our list, is this a company that has a coal power expansion plans? So will the loan very likely be for building a new coal-fired power plant or for exploring a new mine? This is one thing. On the other hand, they can also look in their portfolio and compare it to our list and see how many companies in their, they are invested in which are part of the coal industry they should divest from very quickly. So what would you say has been the response of the banks and some of the investors with regards to your campaign on global coal exit lists? As I said, the banks and investors that responded already are quite positive in a way that they found it useful as a tool. So, I mean, banks, investors we already have in touch with is Norris Bank from the Norwegian Pension Fund. Since a long time, we're campaigning on them and they are reducing their exposure to coal due to our campaigns. And uh, they find it a very useful tool. The other known investor is AXA, the biggest uh, European insurer, a French insurance company, and Bayard, also a big investor. And they really want to use our tool. So they find it 
the tool to divest from the coal industry, which is their plan now. Looking at the coal industry itself, are there any investments that have been looked at with regards to some of the coal industries that are looking to expand their operations? Now, as we looked at, at different companies that have the expansion plans, if you look at the African continent, for example, of course, I mean, South Africa, you know, yourself, like really a country dominated by coal. So if you look at the whole continent, South Africa is still uh, sticking out, where the ESCOM is being the eighth biggest coal power utility worldwide, and therefore, of course, also being the biggest in the African continent. ESCOM also plans over 9,000 megawatt of new coal-fired capacity. Additionally, you also have the biggest coal producer, Exaro, in South Africa from the whole African continent. If you look at other countries on the African continent in the north, it's it's quite striking, really. Egypt, which plants over 17,000 megawatt of coal-fired capacity. We'll see what of that is really going to be built, but this is the plans they announced so far with help from Saudi Arabian and Chinese companies. Um, and when it comes to mines, the two countries which really were sticking out uh, are Mozambique and Botswana. In Mozambique, there's at least 10 new coal projects planned and announced, and in Botswana, six of them. So for mines, really, Mozambique and Botswana are sticking out. And if you look at coal power expansion, South Africa and Egypt are the two countries within Africa which are really sticking out with their plans. That was Katrin Hanswind, coal campaigner and financial researcher for Urgewald, on the line from Bonn, Germany, talking to Wandile Kalipa. The world's top golfers will continue to battle it out at the Ned Bank Golf Challenge in Sun City in Rustenburg, South Africa, this weekend. The event is one of the highlights of the South African sporting calendar. In its 36-year history, it has featured the biggest names in the world of golf, but while all eyes are on those taking part in the golf challenge, it is the style affair, a luxurious networking event for women that gets the most attention. More from Claudia Henkel, Group PR Manager for Sun International. In Netbank Golf Challenge, hosted by Gary Play, is a, a great initiative launched four years ago. Because Sun City is a city within a city, in terms of whether you're a family um, or you're a bunch of ladies or a bunch of guys, um, we realized that the focus of the Netbank Golf Challenge the entire week is golf. And everybody comes to watch golf, but there's nothing really that's put on special for ladies, you know, barring all the activities that you can do at Sun City. So we want to spoil the ladies, and that's how the style affair was born. So basically what it is, it's an entire day of absolute pampering that you can possibly imagine. So anything that a woman wants done, from hair, makeup, nails, massages, uh, we even this year had um, Ivy Push doing the new crazies, these drips that give you energy. We had hair from Bishan. We had so many exciting things for women to do. And they spent the entire day getting pampered at the Netbank Golf while the guys watched the program. And why was it so important for Sun International to have the style affair associated with the Netbank Golf Challenge? Because I think that, you know, definitely Sun International, we look at, you know, things holistically. So we appreciate that the Netbank Golf Challenge has made a name for itself and it's always been one of those go-to events uh, that people, you know, would love to visit and, uh, and come and see. Uh, but we felt that we need to cater for the entire audience and that means that, yes, women can watch golf, but some women and some wives and the European tour wives that also attend the style affair watch their husbands play golf throughout the year. So it was a great opportunity for us to showcase what 
you know, Sun City has an offer other than the sporting occasion. And it's important for Sun International because we are cater for men, women, children and families. You mentioned some of the partners that you um, worked with for this year's Style Affair. Can you just tell us more about, you know, some of the people that, you know, were there to showcase some of the products and also offer their services to some of the people who attended this year's edition of the Style Affair? Absolutely. So we invite a, a group of ladies and they range from the sponsors of the Net and Gold. We then invite uh, local celebrities. You know, we had Sophie and Davide, we had Sashi Naidu. We also invite, you know, we give away free tickets to the public so you can win an exclusive ticket. We only give away two double tickets because it is an invite, um, an invited event. And then we have, we had Barry Player's wife there. She's four years since we started. She's been coming to the Style Affair and, you know, she phones us a week before the style of and just make sure that it's happening. And so it's become quite an event on the ladies' social calendar. That was Claudia Henkel, Group PR Manager for Sun International. She was speaking to Ntlantla Masangu. Good evening, sports fans. I am Osibu Di Makram with the latest sports news at the Sawam. World Female Athlete of the Year finalist Amaz Ayana of Ethiopia has signed up for next Sunday's New Delhi Half Marathon in India on the 19th of November. Ayana will be joined by the reigning Olympic marathon champion Godfrey Kirui of Kenya, who is the headline runner in the men's half marathon race. Our correspondent Geshem Nyati reports. Five days before the crowning of the 2017 IWF World Male and Female Athlete of the Year in Monaco on 24 November, Almazi Ayana, one of the three finalists for the women's accolade, would have just competed in the New Delhi Half Marathon scheduled for Sunday next week. The 25-year-old, a specialist in the 3,000 meters, gold and silver medalist in the 10,000 and 5,000 meters at the World Track and Field Championships in London, will be competing for the first time ever in an international half marathon. Ayana, who was last year crowned World Female Athlete of the Year, has displayed an exciting career from the time she won the Rio Olympic Games 10,000 meters in 2015, setting a new world record over the distance. Jeffrey Kirui, the reigning world marathon champion at the London Games this year and winner of the Boston Marathon in the USA, returns for the New Delhi Half Marathon for the second time. The Kenyan finished sixth position in the same race two years ago. Meanwhile, the 2017 and 2018 cross-country season begins in Spain this Sunday with a few Ethiopian and Kenyan runners taking part. On to tennis news, the former coach of South Africa's number one tennis player, Kevin Anderson, Neville Godwin, has been named Coach of the Year at the 2017 ATP World Tour Awards on Thursday evening at the Tower of London. The 42-year-old was nominated among some of the world's top coaches in the non-public voting category. And finally, in boxing news, both Anthony Joshua and Joseph Parker are keen to square off for a heavyweight title fight in the first quarter of next year, but the financial agreements have to be right, according to Parker's promoter, David Higgins. Now, British Joshua holds the IBF, WBA and IBO heavyweight titles, while New Zealand's Parker holds the WBO title. American Dante Wilder holds the, um, holds the WBC title. Higgins says they were in talks with Joshua's 
manager and if they were able to agree to a fight it will probably be next year april or march um well we were initially hoping to get a fight out in december but it's all about doing the right fights at the right time for the right money and you don't want to trifle with that world title when you've done so much to earn it. Eddie Hearn and I started gently exchanging emails uh, uh, you know, a week ago or whatever and, um, and then we sort of agreed a couple of days ago, he said, you know, he'll go to, I said go to talk to Anthony, he said he'll talk to Anthony Joshua, I said I'll talk to Joseph Parker. So we both sort of connected again yesterday and, and my message was Parker would fight Joshua next and, and uh, Hearn's message was Anthony Joshua would fight Parker next. So it's really down to a question of the deal and money. Higgins says he had also been talking to Wilder, who knocked out Berman Stephen in New York last Saturday and then accused Joshua of dodging a potential showdown. Um, the, Wilder's also an option. Our camp did have some communication with Wilder. And again, if the Wilder crew put the right amount of money on the table, and, and we do talk to Al Heyman and Lou DeBella, if they put the right amount of money on the table, we'd segue that way and go wilder instead of Joshua. So I guess, um, and Eddie should understand all of this, and if he puts a, a fair and reasonable deal on the table, then we might be in business. Well, the Zaya Sports News at the Sour stay tuned to China Africa for more news from an African perspective. This is Africa Digest. And that wraps up Africa Digest today. From myself, Samora Magesi, producer Jose Khotingake, and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you for listening. For comments about our show, send us an email to info at channelafrica.co.za. You can also tweet us and follow us on Twitter at Channel Africa One. Send us an SMS to 2782-332-5905. Channel Africa, the voice of the African perspective. Talking about the voice of the African perspective, it is the top of the hour right now and taking us there, it is a song by P-Square. This one is called Alingo.